Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Princess of the Sea, the riotous science fantasy classic written by Don Wilcox. Vintage, wacky, off-the-wall science fiction. Give us more Wilcox, please, begged award-winning science fiction writer-editor Terry Carr in a letter to Fantastic Adventures in the early 1950s. Princess of the Sea, which has never been reprinted since its original pulp magazine appearance, is one of Don Wilcox's most celebrated science fantasy novels. Like all Don Wilcox's best work, it is a dream extravaganza. In an era when other writers were aiming for scientific accuracy, Wilcox, who knew his science, aimed at a different effect. Wilcox wrote science fantasy with the accent on fantasy. His tales were more like what a widescreen, technicolor MGM adventure epic cum science fiction film starring, say, Errol Flynn would be like if any had ever been made. Be prepared for zany situations, offbeat puns, daffy characters, and plenty of laughs. Science fiction critics and Wilcox's colleagues of the period are divided over whether his particular approach to science fiction was tongue-in-cheek and intended to be funny, or merely the result of the copious quantities of whiskey needed to keep him typing at full speed to meet deadlines. No wonder Lynn Carter, the award-winning fantasist, hailed Don Wilcox's work as adult fairy tales. Don Wilcox, 1905 through 2000, was one of the most popular science fiction writers of the 1940s and early 1950s. The letter columns of Amazing, Other Worlds, Fantastic Adventures, and other Golden Age science fiction pulps are filled with letters from fans, among them soon-to-be Hugo Award winners like Terry Carr and Robert Silverberg, praising his work and begging for more. Most popular of all were Wilcox's novels, such as The Ice Queen, Cats of Cadenza, The Serpent Has Five Fangs, and Land of Blue Apples. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Princess of the Sea. Chapter 1 If you were one of the few persons invited to enter the study of J.J. Wellington, that fabulous financier of New York City, you would notice at once that everything in the room was highly polished, including Mr. Wellington himself. It would be a question which of the two very round objects would catch your eye first, the four-foot globe or Mr. Wellington. Many points of similarity might be observed between these two. Mr. Wellington was not quite as large as the globe. He was not quite immobile. And to be sure, he was not quite as round. If he sat huddled over his desk glaring at a sheaf of papers, you would be more likely to turn your attention to the globe. You would not find the continents of North and South America on this highly colored four-foot sphere. At the slightest touch, it would rotate, but you would look in vain for any familiar landmark, unless you were already acquainted with the continent of Venus. On this particular August afternoon, 
J.J. Wellington, restless with suppressed energy, paced around the tripod which held the globe. Whenever he gave the sphere a spin, in his manner of working off his tense nerves, he would watch it slow down, his bulbous eyes following the red triangular marks which represented the American colony on this remote planet. A servant entered. Shall I serve you a drink now? Mr. Wellington took the glass from the tray and drank. With a flick of his heavy fingers, he dismissed the servant. He glanced at his watch. Three o'clock. Captain Metz would be waiting in the conference room. He must have a few words with Captain Metz before Smith and the others arrived. It was important that Smith should not know... As Stoop Smith and his diminutive friend walked down the street that afternoon, on their way to the office of J.J. Wellington, they were not aware that people turned to comment. Isn't that Stoop Smith? Well, by George, so it is. Looks just the same as in the newsreel. I wonder what he has been doing since that rescue in the Andes. The paper have not said much about it recently. He's a great guy, all right but he sure had a bad break on that South American deal. Stoop Smith did not notice the passers-by because he had gotten used to being the subject of comment wherever he went. As his little friend Hefty Winkle would say, it was like water off a duck's back. You don't reckon you could wangle away for me to get in? Hefty asked for the twelfth time. Sorry, Hefty, the invitation was just for me. You know but I'll tell you all about it the moment the conference is over. It must be a big deal of some sort. You know Wellington. Everybody knows Wellington, Hefty commented with a slight snort of disdain. Money had never come easy for little Hefty Winkle, and perhaps it was his natural jealousy toward the financiers who told in millions. His own dough had come the hard way. He had been a professional wrestler and boxer at the county fair, a hundred and forty pounds of nerve and muscle, he had taken on all comers. And as he had proved to Stoop Smith on several occasions, he packed a hidden wallop that was almost inhuman. Don't let him give you any wooden nickels, Stoop, said Hefty, giving his partner a farewell wave. See you in an hour. Stoop Smith sauntered up the marble steps into the lobby of the Wellington offices. Hefty watched him with his usual hero worship. He admired Stoop for more reasons than he often bothered to define. Stoop had played fair with him, had given him the breaks when he needed them. More than that, there was Stoop's attitude toward life, forever looking forward, trusting in the future, believing the best of his fellow men. He'll wow him, Hefty said to himself. Whatever this adventure is that they're hashing up, they know he is the most reliable guide they could find anywhere. He proved that down in the Andes, even though the honors went to someone else. But that was only a bad break. Seven guests were assembled around the conference table. J.J. Wellington stood before them. In spite of his bulk, he was a handsome and commanding figure. His large, severe eyes, straight nose, his trim black mustaches, the forward thrust of his hard jaw, gave solidity to his every word. Captain Metz and gentlemen, Wellington's eyes moved slowly from one to the other of his guests. 
I shall state my proposition. Each one of you is an expert in his own field. That is why I have brought you here. I am planning a most unique expedition to the planet of Venus. I am basing my plans upon the report of an explorer, about whom all of you have read accounts in the newspapers. Wellington glanced toward the door. Mr. Vest will arrive in a few minutes. A servant rolled the tripod that supported the globe across the floor to the open end of the table. Gentlemen, Wellington resumed, you may be familiar with the map of the American colony on planet Venus. Captain Metz, will you tell us something about the region surrounding this colony? Captain Metz, a man of some reputation for his interplanetary travels, rose and walked to the end of the table. He was a stocky man, dressed in a gray uniform trimmed in blue that matched his deep-set blue eyes. His face bore some resemblance to that of a bulldog, heavy jowls, sagging cheeks. He was a man of forty, a trifle old for his age, with a sprinkling of gray in his brown hair and thick brown mustache. He turned the globe to the best-known continent where the red, ten-inch triangle was visible. I am honored, Mr. Wellington, to say a few words about this region, particularly if I am to have the opportunity of heading expedition to this planet. Any wayfarers to this land are sure to pay their respects to the American colony, represented here by these red boundary lines. As you know, most of the civilization, civilization in our sense of the word, is to be found within these limits. The more or less human natives who dwell in this vicinity have made their peace with our own representatives. We maintain an American embassy here, and our own government insists. At this point, Metz and Wellington exchanged glances, which added weight to the captain's words. Insists that no part of this continent be exploited in any way. That is to say, all private enterprises, for whatever purpose, must be approved by governmental order. Stoop Smith, sitting near the end of the table, nodded with satisfaction. Whatever venture might be in store, he thought, it was well to know that these promoters expected to square everything with the powers that be. Captain Metz might have gone on with a more elaborate description, but at that moment the door opened and there entered a small, mysterious-looking gentleman. Obviously, Mr. Vest. Mysterious-looking. This was Stoop Smith's mental comment, although he couldn't, at first, determine the source of his impression. Shall I come in? The little stranger asked. He was smiling. There was a dreamy look in his eyes. He seemed at once to be fascinated by the ceiling rather than the group around the table. He gestured widely with his short arms, then drew himself up and adjusted his dressy bow tie and repeated the question to the ceiling. Shall I come in now? There was something strange, Stoop thought, in his adding the word now, as if he had been waiting for some time for a signal. Wellington briskly ushered him to the table. Seated, he seemed more diminutive than ever, sitting next to his massive host. Gentlemen, I take extreme honor in presenting to you the explorer whose amazing accounts have made headlines during the past two weeks. 
This, gentlemen, is Mr. Vest. Mr. Vest is going to tell you something he has never revealed before to anyone except myself. Something he saw in the unknown regions of Venus. Go ahead, Mr. Vest. Mr. Vest spoke slowly, and his tones were like the deep notes of a cello. What I have seen, my friends, is so very unbelievable. Mr. Vest was looking through the ceiling now. So unbelievable that when I tell you about her, when I describe her in all her beauty, ah. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Princess of the Sea. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.